0: Hello and welcome to the What Car Car of the Year podcast. I'm Doug Revolta and joining me to discuss the 2022 Car of the Year awards is the What Car Reviews team. Will Nightingale, hello. Hello Doug. Neil Wynn, hello. Hi Doug. Max Adams, hello. Hey Doug. And we are talking about the best new cars that you can buy right now and don't forget for reviews and deals on all the cars that we mention and many many more go to whatcar.com. So first up our car of the year 2022, the best new car that's been launched in the last 12 months, is the new Kia EV6.
1: So Will, give us some background on what the car actually is. Well, yes, it's uh, it's an electric car. It's actually the second electric car that's won our overall award. And funnily enough, the second Kia uh, electric car that's won uh, the award as well. The E-Niro one a couple of years ago. And that was a real step forward in electric cars, certainly at the price point. And the ev 6 again has proved that kia knows what it takes to build to build a great electric car it's based on very similar underpinnings to the hyundai ioniq 5 which were big fans of that car as well but there are a few key differences and one of those is that it has uh, a larger battery and of course that gives it a longer range between charges so this is a car that competes with you know, entry-level tesla model 3 for range and it's a similar price has a capability to charge up very, very quickly. It is massive inside. And on top of that, it's a car that makes sense financially. As I said, it's sort of priced more in line with the entry level Tesla Model 3. So um, it's more than 40,000 pounds. So I'm not suggesting for a second, this is a cheap car. But when you consider what you can pay for an electric car and you you can pay 20,000 pounds for a relatively basic Volkswagen Polo these days, that's, that's not too, too bad at
2: all we actually think it's very good value for money
1: okay
0: neil what are the other kind of areas where the ev6 really stands out
2: we often talk about and we've reviewed many electric cars over the years and uh finding an ev that you could genuinely have as as your only car or your only main family car um is is surprisingly tricky but the ev6 manages to do that so You know, Will's discussed its size, but also, you know, it's got a great range. So, in fact, officially it can do 328 miles between charges, which is further than the Hyundai Ioniq 5 and the entry level Tesla Model 3. And we put that to the test up at our... uh, millbrook proving Ground, and although it was a pretty cold day when we tested it and we found that ev6 wasn't quite as efficient as the tesla model 3 because of that big battery uh it actually had a real world range of 260 miles compared to the tesla's 230. while you can't use tesla's brilliant charging network when you do need to top up if you can find a a ccs charging device that can charge it over 230 kilowatts and the EV6 also will charge really quickly, I think 10 to 80% in about 17 minutes. So again, that as well is quicker than an entry-level uh, Model 3.
0: Just on the subject of range there, um, so obviously the official range, 328 miles, that's really far, but, but we're saying it's going to be more like 260 miles in, in genuine real-world driving. Is that good by new electric car standards? Can, can anyone give
1: us a bit of context on how that compares to other cars? Well, yeah, I think firstly to point out, as Neil uh, did touch upon there, it was very cold when we did the test, it was in late November, I think temperature was around two degrees from memory. So low temperatures aren't good for battery uh, performance in general, and you'll see a huge drop off in range. So 260 miles, as long as you're driving, sent to be sticking to the speed limits, obviously not accelerating really hard, or you're not on a really hilly road, 260 miles is kind of the minimum you'd expect. Yeah, if you drive this car. Uh, gently in, this, in the warm months, we would fully expect about 280 to, to potentially even 300 miles on a charge. Our favourite EV6 is around about 43,000, 40, uh, 44,000 pounds. And that is a lot of money, of course. But if you look at some electric cars that have come out recently, like the BMW iX, uh, the Audi e-tron, you know, these, are, these are luxury brands, admittedly, but they've been out, um, e-tron's been out for a while. The, the iX has just come out 70,000 pounds luxury suv that has a significantly inferior range to the ev6 so i think when you put that into the equation yeah it does it does seem incredibly good value for money and it's 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 i think we said this with the e-nero when that one a few years ago and that had a real world range of around about 250 miles in good weather it was far enough that most people could rely on it as their uh, as their only car if you are someone who does fewer than Certainly, two hundred miles on a on a on a trip, um, on a regular basis, you're going to have absolutely no problems with this at all because you can really charge at home, and that's the key thing to remember. You know, we talk about charging infrastructure and how fast these cars charge up. If you've got a driveway, you want to be doing your, your charging at home, really, because not only is it going to be less inconvenient because you're going to have to stop, you're not going to have to stop at motorway service stations and things like that, but also you're going to be paying a lot less per kilowatt hour than you will do at some of these motorway service stations and other public charging networks okay great so
0: big range can charge really quickly massive inside max can you tell us more about the kind of lineup of the of the ev6 range so what different versions can you buy and also what ones would we recommend
3: obviously the ev6 there at present are three trim levels to go for there's the entry level air mid-range gt line and top spec gt line s you can also get it in rear wheel drive or all-wheel drive form we recommend going for the rear wheel drive version because obviously as neil touched upon earlier range is important and if you went for the all-wheel drive version that knocks about 15 miles off the overall range uh likewise if you went for gt line s you'd get bigger 20 inch wheels which you know they look nice but again LOP's about 15 miles off the range so we say go for the rear wheel drive gt uh, line model you get a lot of equipment for the money i mean like over air you get Adaptive LED headlights. Um, you've got the nice fancy electric sort of like front driver and passenger seat You push a button and almost folds completely flat. So you've got um, Wireless phone charging you've got front parking sensors to go with the standard uh, Reversing camera and rear parking sensors but Also quite importantly you've got extra safety stuff like you've got your blind spot monitoring your rear cross-traffic alert
0: Okay, great. So loads of equipment as well um, and, Will, you mentioned the e Nero earlier, which obviously was our overall car of the year in 2019. And that was a car that really felt like it moved the EV class on and set a new benchmark for it.
1: Do you think the EV6 is going to have a similar impact on things? Look, I think it's always going to get more and more difficult the more mature the, the EV market becomes. And, uh, you know, if you look back to the first generation Nissan Leaf, for example, around about a decade ago, that was a huge step forward from what came previously, but you know it was a it was a pretty low benchmark at that time, and then it's been much easier for newer models to come along and make a real step change in terms of either range, or uh, charging speed, things like that. And I think you know the the Niro definitely uh, when that came along, it didn't necessarily offer a longer range than cars like the Tesla Model S but it offered it at a a, a realistic price point for for a lot of people. And then again, another step change came with the Model 3, which uh, was launched in the UK in 2019. And that still, although we voted the EV6 um, our car of the year, deserves it. If you can afford a little bit more uh, to go for the long range Model 3, it's probably, yeah, it's about eight, ten thousand pounds more expensive, depending on the options you add. Then you'll have a car with an even longer range and the ability to charge even faster, obviously using Tesla's charging infrastructure, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit more in detail later on. But you know, I think for the for the money, this will be this is this is a step on. It's not going to uh, it's not revolutionising the market. It is just putting together a really good car um, with the things that are important to electric car buyers. And those key ones are of course range and the ability to charge quickly so yeah i think yeah you we're probably not going to be talking about uh these cars you know in in 20 years time and saying what a what a real step change they were in the way that you know uh, a first generation Nissan Leaf was a an e-nero was or a, a model 3 was but that should not take anything away from the cars the more mature the market gets it's harder and harder for, for manufacturers to make a real leap forward we're talking about small gains but if if it's even small gains um if it's the best car out there then it's it's a fantastic bike sure and another car that the ev6 was up against in the electric
0: suv class was the skoda Enyaq, and actually the ev6 won overall a very deserving victory but it was quite close with the Enyaq for not only the electric suv title but then being named overall car of the year as well so let's move on to talk about ENYAC and it's a car that is quite similar to the VW ID4 and the Audi Q4 e-tron underneath um, but will what makes the Enyaq different from those cars and and what makes it so impressive
1: yeah I think um, although the Enyaq didn't win an award you've got to remember that it's in the same category as, as EV6 um, now you can argue that it's is it slightly more of an SUV than an EV6s quite it probably is but I think it was one of those years that had the decision gone the other way, and the and had yeah, beaten the EV six. We could well be talking about this as uh, our overall car of the year. It is a it is a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant electric car, particularly when you consider value for money. You know, it just fell short in the end. Now, those two key things are the version that you that is fantastic value is the sixty. Now, the sixty has an okay range, but it's nothing spectacular. So. Um, compared with the e v six, it's 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 quite a way behind that. Now, on plus side, it is a lot cheaper, um, uh, up to around you know 12000 pounds cheaper, or at least it was at the time. But uh, around the time we were making the decision, the government withdrew the uh, two and a half thousand pound electric grant for cars priced between thirty two and thirty five thousand pounds, which the Enyaq was. And now you only get it if the car is uh, priced under thirty two thousand pounds and it's reduced to 1,500 quid. Now, no Enyaq falls into that um, that price uh, sub 32,000 pounds. So, of course, it puts effectively 2,500 pounds on the price. It brings the, the, the cost difference between the EV6 and the Enyaq much closer together. And I think, given that it has an inferior range, it, uh, that was the, really the, uh, the nail in the coffin for it. But, you know, take nothing away from it. It is still a lot, lot cheaper than the EV6 it is even more practical it's a huge car you know it's it's great value compared with you, know, you mentioned the ID4 and the Audi Q uh, the Audi Q4 it's significantly cheaper than both those alternatives which of course share a lot underneath in terms of batteries and architecture um so yeah absolutely and if you do find that the entry level 60 version is a little bit short on range but you really want to buy an enyaq there is the 80 version as well which has a um uh, a much larger battery that's broadly in line with the the range that you get in the EV6. Okay, and at the the other less family-focused end of the EV spectrum, another
0: strong contender this year for the overall award was the BMW i4. Now, we voted that as having the best interior in the large electric car class, but it just lost out to the Tesla Model 3 Performance, which won the class overall. So, Neil, we've highlighted the i4 as being one of our star cars, but it isn't as good as a Tesla is that the full story or is there more to it than that
2: yeah that's not the the full story necessarily um i think out of all the cars that we tested last year the i4 was the one i was most looking forward to drive effectively the i4 is showing bmw's you know future EV design direction because essentially it's underneath It's got much of the technology that we're going to be seeing in the new Electric 3 Series, which uh, will be coming to market fairly soon. Um, And that platform in itself and the way BMW has gone around creating the i4, I think is quite interesting because unlike Tesla and Polestar that have based their cars on, you know, effectively clean sheet designs new from the ground up to be EVs, the i4 is actually based on an existing petrol and diesel powered car, the 4 Series Grand Coupe and that brings with it you know some real advantages for example you get the same great driving position and the class leading interior quality that you've just mentioned and a level of refinement that we found to be quite a bit better than the Model 3 but there's also some disadvantages basing it on a car that was initially designed for an internal combustion engine so you know to shoehorn uh, the massive battery its 83.9 kilowatt hour battery uh, under the floor you know the rear seats have had to be lifted a little bit which compromises rear headroom compared to the model 3 so it's not quite as practical and compared to the model 3 and the Polestar 2 you also don't get a front boot and on top of that we also found um, even with the eDrive40 having that large battery it wasn't quite as efficient on our uh, Mm -hmm. testing route when we were testing range so it only showed a real world range of about 234 miles for the bmw versus 284 for the model 3 which is quite a big difference and again we should point out it was very cold that day Um, you know it was kind of single digits so we you know you should expect a much better range than that in in most circumstances but still quite a difference between the two cars on the same day in the same conditions and then on top of that as we've already touched on probably the biggest disadvantage which is not just unique to bmw um but to all manufacturers is that you don't get the tesla public charging network that you get access to when you get a model Three, um, and me and our consumer colleague, colleague Claire Evans uh, did a survey earlier in the year on public charges, uh, which again I'm sure we'll get onto a little bit later. And we found, you know, the Tesla charging network is, you know, head and shoulders above um, anything else available at the moment. Um, so overall, you do have to put a weighting on how important that is, especially if you're going to charge at home. But we found, as a whole, the Model Three still has the edge over the i4
0: staying with the comparison of the i4 and the model 3 if they had the same range and the same charging infrastructure obviously that's a big if do you think the outcome would have been a bit different and and is, is the bmw better to drive than the tesla
2: it would be incredibly close so it's quite nuanced as well we, we found that between the m50 and the model 3 performance Uh, which are basically the most focused versions of those cars. We actually found the Model 3 to be the slightly sharper car to drive. Um, So if you were wanting a a performance electric uh, saloon, we would still point you in the direction of the Model 3. But at the taking one step down, um, there's only two models available at the moment of the i4. The entry level eDrive40 to us seemed like the best package because it has the same large battery as the M50, but it's rear wheel drive. So it gets a better range than the more expensive M50. And when you compare that to the entry level Model 3, it's actually much closer. Uh, Like I said earlier, I think interior quality is better, driving positions better. It actually has quite a large rear boot. It might not have that front frunk of the Tesla, but it has a hatchback rear end. So inherently you get a little bit more room in the rear boots. So taking the Tesla charging network out of the equation between those two cars, it's very close. And charging is a big factor when you've got two cars that are very close to one another, the E-Drive 40 and the entry level Tesla Model 3, you have to be able to split them in some way. And unfortunately for the BMW, we just found that the Tesla supercharger network is so brilliant that it made the difference.
0: Well, you touched on it there, Neil. Let's talk a bit more about the charging infrastructure. And very simply, Will, is the Tesla supercharger infrastructure good enough
1: for owners of Tesla cars? Well, absolutely, yeah. It's um, by far the best charging network out there. Um, Of course, it is proprietary, so you can't use it if you don't have a Tesla, and that's unlike every other public charging network. You know, we talk about Ionity, um, Gridserve, you can go and plug in to one of those if you have a Tesla or any other electric car, as long as you've got the right charging interface, which most uh, most do these days. Sure, and then on the other side, if you don't
0: own a Tesla and you can't use Tesla superchargers, mm-hmm. is the UK's charging
1: infrastructure good enough? From from my experience, and a lot of this is obviously anecdotal. Yeah, a few years ago, probably two two years ago, pre-pandemic. The charging infrastructure was not great at all. Um, but when you went onto a motorway service station, you found a charging point. As long as it was actually working, there's a good chance that there was one free for you to use. Now, of course, the number of charging points has increased uh, fairly significantly over the last uh, last couple of years. But so was the amount of electric cars. So what you find now is that when you uh, go onto certainly the major trunk roads, and unless you seek out uh, a, a location that you know has eight to ten chargers you could well find that you end up having to queue. i had this the other day i was in a bmw ix i went to oxford services i had 19 miles left of range and um there was a, a nissan leaf plugged into um the electricity charging point that i was using and it was uh that was a different type of connector but it wouldn't allow you to use both so i had to sit there for about half an hour and wait for them to finish and i didn't have enough range you could say that's poor planning on my part, which is a fair point, um, I suppose. But it didn't have enough range to to, to make it to the next one, certainly and not be confident that, that that one might not work. So I think this is a, this is a real frustration. And because you know the amount of charging points need to need to increase relative to the amount of electric cars on the road, not just more charging points, because, of course, if we're getting more and more electric cars and plug in hybrids you know, on the road, then then that sort of um, cancels each other out. Now, if you're someone who uh, does relatively short journeys and you can charge up at home, yeah, my wife has a Renault Zoe. I can't remember the last time that she used a public charging point—probably well over a year ago, because you're, it's a second car and you're doing short trips. That's one thing. But if you're using this as a uh, or thinking of this as your only car and you're thinking about doing long distances and relying on chargers that aren't on your uh, aren't at your house um, or your place of work, then the charging infrastructure for non-Tesla drivers, in my opinion, is not good enough. Now there's a reliability issue as well. Now I have never, and again, this is anecdotal to a point, but we've done some charging surveys. I've never gone to a Tesla supercharger and found it doesn't work. But quite frequently you'll plug into um, a, a, a motorway charging point that says it's working. And then for some reason it won't connect with your car or it won't charge or it cuts out. So that's incredibly frustrating, particularly if you've got your know, plans that day and you're not on holiday, you're working or, or, or whatever. So that's one problem. Um, the other problem is that yeah. You know, again, I was in a yeah you know, around about the time we were doing the i4 versus Model 3 test. I came back to uh, to London from our proving ground and I stopped off at a Ted, Tesla supercharger network in the Model 3, which had relatively low state of charge. And actually, and I've got a photo of it, actually took was pulling two hundred and fifty kilowatts, which is the maximum that car can accept for a short period of time Of course as the back, the state of charge of the battery increases you know, the amount it's pulling will reduce but you you genuinely get close to the maximum of that the car can can it um accept you know, fairly regularly of course you know, if there are eighteen people on the on the charging uh at the, at the location and there are twenty charging points that will reduce a little bit whereas on the other hand, if you I was used an Ionity charging point a couple of times over, over Christmas, and I thought, well, I'll just I'll spend the extra because it'll be quick. On one of those occasions, from a low state of charge, around 20%, again in a BMW IX, I was getting between 40 and 60 kilowatts. And for that, I was paying 70p nearly for a kilowatt hour. So that's very expensive. Um, and the car, the the Ionity the charging point is supposed to deliver up to 350 kilowatts. Okay, it won't do that for an iX, but it still should deliver around 200 kilowatts. So this is massively less than you expect. And then the problem there is, of course, you think we talk about and this is a a point to make about the EV6. We talk about 17 minutes to charge it up. That is in ideal conditions. In reality, you might come to a charging point, plug your car in and it's only uh, it's accepting a much lower rate of charge than it's supposed to. Um, and you might end up having to wait for forty-five minutes. So that's a realistic. Um, yeah, it, we talk about fuel economy, a range, and, and and we should be open about charging speeds. This is not what you will get. This is what you could get in ideal conditions, but probably won't. So I think you know these these things need to be considered. And uh, I think, frankly, unless manufacturers can get closer to Tesla on the charging infrastructure, uh, the or helping improve the public charging infrastructure there will still be, all while Tesla are making good cars, maybe not class-leading in every area, but good cars, there will be a, a genuine reason to choose one over most rivals. It's so frustrating, isn't it? Because
0: it does feel like we're absolutely miles off the charging infrastructure being easy and convenient in the way that a Tesla supercharger is. Max, do you think the charging infrastructure is something that should put buyers off getting an electric car?
3: well i mean there are a lot of you know certainly if you're having it as a company car financial advantages to having an electric car and to be honest having you know obviously you spend a little bit of time charging there there might be somebody else using the charger next to you have a quick conversation with you i think people are still willing to put up with you know having to go to a charger if you know like yourself they can't charge at home they haven't got a driver or something like that spend 20 minutes half hour doing something on their phone what have you and charging their car so i don't think it should necessarily put you off if there is certainly a a, a strong financial benefit uh to having electric car sure well let's hope
0: that things do improve and improve quickly so that's it for part one coming up in part two we're talking more car of the year contenders hot hatches and performance cars Motor Easy is the one-stop shop for car owners with all you need to manage, protect and maintain your car, including warranties, gap insurance, car servicing, MOTs and much more. See how much you can save at motoreasy.com or call 0800 131 001 and quote WC6 for an extra six months free on a 12-month warranty, exclusive to What Car Readers. Welcome back. So, another car and another EV in contention for the top award was the Cupra Born. It was named as the best small electric car, and it beat the VW ID3, which it's actually based on. So, Max, how is the Born different from the ID3 and why is it better?
3: Well, obviously, it comes from Cupra, and Cupra have set themselves up to be the sporty, uh, more athletic sort of uh, brand. Uh, and that's kind of reflected in the Cupra Born itself i mean you know the suspension has been stiffened slightly so while it is a little bit firmer overall uh, one could argue that you know it has better body control um likewise it also it uh, it turns in it handles a lot more keenly uh than the ID3 does obviously the ID3 is a very good electric car but the Cupra Born moves it on a little bit further
0: are there any other areas where the Cupra is slightly better than the ID3?
3: Certainly in the interior. Um one of the I think the biggest sort of like criticisms we had with the ID3 originally is obviously you go into the interior and you think, actually, for a VW product, if you certainly if you come down to it from a golf, you'd look at some of the hard plastics, you think, hang on a moment, you know, I was hoping for a little bit better. Obviously, in the cooper born, um, you get a lot more sort of soft touch materials across the dashboard. Also, you get a larger 12-inch infotainment screen than the ID3's 10-inch version, um, which we found to be a little bit more, well, a little easier to get on with, certainly in, in the Cupra. It's a good all-rounder, isn't it, the Cupra Born, but it's not
0: quite perfect. Will, are there some areas where this small electric car recipe still needs fine tuning?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think look, it's it, it won the award absolutely, and it's it's the best small electric car that you can buy. Um, we define small by the the, the length of the car. Um, for anyone who's interested, so um, so yeah, I think yeah, you know, we're talking about small improvements to interior quality, um, which which is great. But you know, this is not a spectacular car inside, and and the infotainment system again, there are. Uh, areas that it is slightly better than the ID3, but bear in mind the ID3's infotainment system is a real weak point. So I think, you know, those two things are are, are areas that uh, could be improved upon. It wouldn't shock me if in another 12 months we saw uh, uh, a new class leader there, but yeah, take nothing away from Cooper at the moment. It is, it is definitely the best small electric car you can buy. Okay, so let's
0: move away from fully electric cars and talk about perhaps one of the surprise packages this year, and that was the Lexus. NX. A surprise because the first generation NX wasn't great. now the second generation is, and it's Lexus's first plug-in hybrid. So will, what's good
1: about the NX? Yeah, real surprise for me, probably the surprise of the year. Um, you know I, I've, I've been doing this job for quite a while now. Um, used to uh, most of Lexus models you mentioned previous generation NX being very good in some areas, yeah, certainly interior build quality and of course reliability and data service, and things like that, but also had some real weak points one of those being infotainment systems, really clunky and unfriendly. Um, And to drive uh, had weaknesses as well in terms of sort of refinement and uh, and ride comfort and handling compared with the best European rivals as well. Now, the NX um, is, as you say, a plug-in hybrid, but it beats most of its rivals when it comes to uh, a pure electric range. Now, we're talking about in the real world, about 30 to 35 miles on a charge, officially you know, 40 to 45. Uh, why does that matter? Well, firstly, it means you can get further on electricity, which is a good thing because you don't have to use petrol. Um, but also in the UK, it means that you get lower company car tax rates. So it's really, really attractive. It's in 77 percent tax band at the moment. So much cheaper than something like a, an Audi Q5 TFSIe or a BMW X3 30E to run as a company car. Invertainment system, massive improvement. It's an all-new system in the NX, um, it's a really big touchscreen, pretty user-friendly, not quite so as compared with the system in the X3, but other than that it's it's there or thereabouts with the with the best cars in the class. Um, and yeah, when it's running on electricity, very refined, of course you've got no petrol engine um, running and you we're not talking about low speeds, you can actually drive this car if, if it were legal up to 83 miles an hour motorway speeds, um acceleration is pretty brisk in in electric mode as well it's practical it has a nice interior but on top of that you get the the reliability and the the dealer service that that lexus is famous for so i think really what we're talking about here is they're ironing out some of the flaws that might have made you buy a bmw or an audi or something like that um but not taking away some of the things that lexus has done really well over a number of years so yeah for me uh quite possibly the surprise of the year. We we're used to Kia making great electric cars, um, but we're not used to Lexus making um, great SUVs. Okay, let's move on to hot hatches now. And in this class, we've got a new
0: old winner in the Mercedes A45 AMG. So Will, it was the Toyota GR Yaris that won last year. What's happened to that car? And also why is the A45
1: so good? Uh, well, yeah, I think um, rather unusual won this that we used to new cars coming along and winning, uh, beating existing cars. Um, But this year we had the Toyota Yaris GR, which was brilliant and won last year. Unfortunately, Toyota has decided that it sold all the ones that it plans to build and it couldn't um, build and it couldn't guarantee to us if it was gonna make any more or not. So of course we couldn't give it an award on that basis because you can't actually order one. Uh, and then the car that won previous in previous years and st- was still a great hot hatch, the Civic Type R, uh, also went off sale. So almost, I don't want to, um, you know, uh, take anything away from the the A45, but it is almost won because two cars have gone off sale. Um, and the one thing that you would say has stopped it beating those cars in the past is its price, because it is very very expensive. It's uh, around about fifty-seven thousand pounds, lot of money for a hot hatch but that it's always been a phenomenal car. And it wasn't unchallenged this year, was it? It wasn't at all. No. So, um, the other newcomer, which is actually a direct rival, it's only direct rival really was the RS3 and very similar performance. And, you know, these are cars that go, can go from not 60 in less than four seconds, you know, proper performance car pace. The RS3 is a little bit easier going. It's um, slightly more comfortable, slightly more refined, but for us, hot hatches, primarily about h- how much fun you can have, how much fun they are to drive. And it isn't as though the A45 is a pain the rest of the time. It's actually pretty comfortable. It's got adaptive suspension. Yeah, there's a bit of tire noise, but you know, these are all sacrifices that you make, You make that in a 911, uh, for, uh, which is a great performance car, for example. So I think it's, yeah, the A45 is a fantastic, fantastic hot hatch, um, brilliant dynamically um, and, yeah, easy to live with the rest of the time. Very well equipped. The only one problem is that you need to have fifty-seven thousand pounds or a lot of money on the monthly PTP payment to afford one. So let's talk about performance cars
0: next. And last year, it was the Porsche Taycan, which was the overall winner. This year, the award has gone to the Taycan Cross Turismo, which is angled as the kind of off-road estate version of the Taycan. Is that true, Neil? Is that exactly what that car is?
2: Yeah, that's effectively what it is. And, you know, when we voted the Taycan Coupe, uh four-door coupe our overall performance car of the year last year, you know, you could argue it was something of a watershed moment um for electric cars in general because you know it changed the way we kind of perceive and interact with EVs. But, you know, Porsche isn't really a brand that kind of is one to rest on its laurels. So, I think it was about 6 months later we got this Taycan Cross Turismo. Um, which is yeah, it's a bit of an odd concept. It's a five-door kind of estate car version of the of the Taycan four-door coupe. But what we liked about it was that it kind of broadened the versatility of an already really highly uh, accomplished performance car, and yet it did that without compromising in other areas. So because of that estate car silhouette, you know, you get more headroom and a more usable boot. And while it does sit, I think, 20 millimeter higher than the regular Taycan, you might think that could hamper its dynamics. And yes, arguably, it's not quite as sharp. But on the kind of battered British B roads that we're on all the time, that kind of extra suspension trouble is is really welcome. And you know, it has all the different type of driving modes. And when you put it in sport mode, you know, it really kind of hunkers down and feels like a, a proper performance car. So for us there's so many positives for going for that car over the coupe in terms of practicality and yet it still delivers you know 99 of the of the thrills of the standard car as well so yeah it's a it's a really fantastical rounder it's not really an estate though is it in the way that an rs6 is no i mean you could almost say it's potentially more of a shooting brake you know something like an e63 has a significantly larger boot but when you're looking at both cars sitting there beside each other the taikan saloon and the cross turismo it's hard not to see why you wouldn't go for the cross turismo because like i say even if you occasionally take people out to dinner or you know you have children it gives you that little bit more headroom in the rear and the extra boot space you know means that you could potentially take your dog along for the ride not if it's a great dane but you know and ultimately there's not much difference on price either
0: is there so um if you look at an equivalently specced cross turismo with the um taikan coupe then it's really not much more for that added versatility that you were talking about
2: yeah and and that's not necessarily straightforward i mean you know porsche it always comes down to specs and they are very spec dependent so when you actually dive into the configurator what you'll find is that the 4s cross Turismo gets the higher performance 93.4 kilowatt hour battery as standard whereas if you go for the saloon you have to pay extra for that and once you factor that in and things like air suspension they're both within you know a few hundred pounds of one another so you know, if you're looking at our favoured 4S, Cross Turismo versus the Saloon, there's very little in it. Ultimately, whichever tie can you go for, you're getting an outstanding
0: performance car. And that is it for part two, coming up in part three. We're looking back at some of the struggles for the car industry in the past year, but then looking ahead to the more exciting models coming out just around the corner. Moserizy.com, MotorEasy is the one-stop shop for car owners with all you need to manage, protect and maintain your car, including warranties, gap insurance, car servicing, MOTs and much more. See how much you can save at MotorEasy.com or call 0800 131 01 and quote WC6 for an extra six months free on a 12-month warranty, exclusive to what Car readers. Welcome back. So in 2021, as if Covid wasn't enough of a problem, the new car industry was kept in a crisis by a global semiconductor chip shortage. So Neil, what is a semiconductor chip and
2: why are they important for new cars? So a a semiconductor is basically a material product that's comprised of silicon, which conducts electricity more than an insulator such as glass, but less than a pure conductor such as copper or aluminium so you can basically have silicon at room temperature and that's an insulator but heat it up and it becomes a conductor and it's that variable resistance that makes them so useful and it means that they're found in everything from your microwave to your car but obviously the problem is this year there just aren't enough of them to meet industry demand and i'm simplifying it down but when we all had to work from home we couldn't easily get out and buy cars and the market in the automotive world stalled. But obviously we were all working from home as well and consumers and businesses had to start buying new laptops and servers to cater for staff working remotely. So the tech industry started to buy up all of the semiconductors. So as you can imagine, when we've come out of lockdown and we're wanting to go and buy cars, the automotive industry is effectively at the back of the line for buying semiconductors. And That's one of the reasons we've got this massive delay. If you could break it down even more, what does a semiconductor
0: actually do in a car?
2: Well, semiconductors basically, like I say, they they're an easy way to create variable resistance. So they're found in lots of chips that control the ECU of cars, the memory of cars, and there's multiple of them in modern cars. And do you know roughly how many of these semiconductor chips are actually used in new cars yeah well it can be somewhere in the region of 50 to a thousand and i'm sure in even more technically advanced cars it'll be even more than that um and usually you know that's not necessarily a problem semiconductors are made you know on a massive scale but there's so many different factors going on at the market that's making it difficult for places to produce them but also for them to actually be delivered and so what was the impact of that on the new car industry yeah well it's been pretty catastrophic on on the new car industry to to a certain degree and and that's really hit the consumers massively and i'm sure if anybody listening has tried to buy a new car in the last year um, it's been incredibly difficult with manufacturers perhaps offering you a different model because one the model that you're going for there's not enough semiconductors in order to be able to build that car and um, two manufacturers just saying that you're going to have to wait on a waiting list for a year two years with kind of no end in sight and obviously the knock-on impact of that is that the used car market has actually gone through the roof and kind of raised prices overnight of, of used vehicles so, Really, it's not easy for the consumer. If you're wanting to buy new or used at the moment, there is a real bottleneck and it's kind of being felt by everybody.
0: Is this going to be resolved anytime soon, do you think? And should this put people off
2: buying a new car? I don't think it should put people off necessarily buying a new car. Um, but is there an end in sight? It's very hard to say. Um, the chief executives i think of intel and ibm have both said that the chip shortage could last well into 2023 and as i said you know i was kind of oversimplifying it um with people working from home and purchasing new laptops but if you speak to industry experts they've been saying that this problem has been coming for a long time and now just added on top of that the fact that The tech industry is buying more chips than ever, and shipping containers are far more expensive than they used to be. And we've had a blockage in the Suez Canal. All of these small factors have added up to a situation where, yeah, it could be another year or so before we start to see uh, semiconductors reaching manufacturers in the quantities uh, that they actually need. Okay, that's enough about problems.
0: Let's now look forward to the next 12 months and some exciting cars that we'll be driving soon. Starting with the winner of our Reader Award, this is the car that what car readers are most excited about, the new Range Rover. So Max, can you tell us what's new with the fifth generation of the Range Rover?
3: New Range Rovers don't come around very often. Uh, This is the fifth new Range Rover, and I think it's like 51 year history or what have you. Um, But Obviously, It is a big deal. Um, Well, some may argue maybe not looking at it from the front and from the outside, but there's a lot of changes underneath in the new Range Rover. Like, for example, this is going to be the first Range Rover that you could buy as an all-electric version. That's obviously in 2024. For now, the big news is plug-in hybrid version offering potential of 60 miles of all-electric range. That's going to be a very big deal to people who, you know buy it and drive it in London and what have you major cities um, also rapid charging so the ability to charge it at 50 kilowatts you know obviously making it a lot more usable as an electric vehicle to people um, practicality wise is obviously a major difference because this is going to be the first Range Rover offered with three rows of seating
0: okay well are you looking forward to driving the new Range Rover and is there anything else coming out in the next 12 months
1: that you're Looking forward to driving. Yeah, always looking forward to driving a new Range Rover. It's um, it's uh, it's an exciting time for for us motoring journalists. Uh, I'm yeah, a little bit in two minds about the design because obviously I think most people uh, would agree because they've sold an awful lot of them that the 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 current generation Range Rover, the fourth generation, is a very good looking car. Um, but there have been real step changes in the design in in uh, previous generations. Whereas this one, I think if you looked at it from the front three quarters, you'd think. Is this the new one or, or, or is it the previous one? I'm not sure. It looks somewhere between across uh, between the Velar and uh, the existing Range Rover to me. There are obviously bigger differences at the back. Um, but I think you know if you've got if you've got such a winning design like that and you're selling huge amounts of cars across the world and you've got a brand almost like the Golf was a few years ago, you don't want to mess with that too much. And apart from the Range Rover world, is there anything else that you're looking forward to this year? Well, actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to driving the Sportage, the new Kia Sportage. Kia's on a bit of a roll at the moment, so uh, so yeah, they're pretty exciting. And obviously, at the other end of the scale, there's a Cayman GT4 RS that I would very much like to drive. But obviously, that's a um, very limited edition car and um, not the sort of thing that uh, people will be buying in great numbers. Well, allow
0: me to bring things back to what car territory. And I'm actually quite looking forward to driving the Aura Cat. Um, which we got a chance to look at before before Christmas, but we didn't actually get to drive it. Now, slightly left-field choice perhaps, but it's one of the best-selling EVs in China, but it's coming over to Europe. It's going to start from around £26,000. It's unclear yet whether that includes the grant or not, so it could be cheaper than that. It will do about 260 miles officially. So I'm just very interested to see what a very successful car in China is like in the european market and what impact that has on other kind of mainstream manufacturers over here but neil is there anything else that you're looking forward to driving this year
2: i don't know we'll actually get behind the wheel of it this year but i'm very much looking forward to seeing and potentially driving the the new electric McCann. um i think if you'd asked me that a couple of years ago you know and and when i first heard that the next McCann would be pure electric i was genuinely surprised i just thought that was kind of a a mad decision it's amazing how quick the world has really developed um to the point where i think i saw in the news the other week that porsche's Taycan has outsold the 911 for for the first time so yeah i think uh, an all-electric mccann will actually be quite exciting um especially if you see how highly we rate the Taycan. then
0: it shows that porsche knows what they're doing with evs so there's surely every reason to be excited for the new mccann
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, Porsche, like like I said earlier, talking about the Cross Turismo, they've shown that an electric car can actually be fun, and you know, as the Germans would say, emotional to drive. And um, so it'll be, yeah, really interesting to have a go in the mccann and then on the other end of the scale, um a bit more old school. I'm genuinely looking forward to driving the BMW M3 Touring. Uh, there's never been an M3 Touring, and to me, I think that uh, okay, it'll only appeal to you know the privileged few. But I think that'll be kind of a fantastic thing to drive and hopefully put up against, I don't know, maybe a new C63. We'll see. Nissan have got a couple of cars coming out
0: that will drive fairly early this year, I think. One of them being the Aria, which is a fully electric car. And obviously, because we have the Nissan Leaf, there's quite a lot of expectation around Nissan and the EVs that they're able to produce. And also, there'll be a version of the Qashqai, which is a bit interesting as well, isn't it, Will? Can you tell us more about the e-power Qashqai that we'll be in soon?
1: Yeah, well it's it's a hybrid, but um, rather than a, a Toyota or Lexus style hybrid in that you can the wheels can be driven by an electric motor or by the petrol engine or by both power sources together. And um, this has uh, an effectively a, a petrol engine that acts as a generator. So if, if you think about the BMW i3 range extender, which is no longer on sale, there's a petrol engine that effectively produces electricity that then Powers and an electric motor to drive the car along. So it's a slightly different way of going about things, but yeah, cash car is a huge seller. We're, we're big fans of the car. This generation, perhaps not quite as uh, brilliant as its predecessors, but it's still one of the better cars in the class. So uh, excited if that can, can move things on a little bit. Okay, great. So we've driven some brilliant cars
0: in the last 12 months. There's some great ones coming out in the next 12 months. So thank you, Will, Neil and Max, and to you listener for joining us for the What Car? Car of the Year podcast. We really hope you've enjoyed listening. Go to whatcar.com to read our reviews and get a great deal on your next new car. Buy our magazine, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, and we'll see you next time.